That's the most important thing is changing that dynamic from here's what you should do. Here's the cookie cutter approach. Here's the approach that fits, you know, 90% of people to let's talk about where you're at, what your goals are and figure out a plan that works for you. You know, really building on the agency that people feel rather than trying to motivate them based on fear or the potential that things might go badly if they don't do X, Y, or Z. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am pleased you're here for another week. This week, our guest is Dr. Michael Collins. Before we get into the show, I have a favor. If you can please head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. If you've been enjoying our guest and listening, that is a great way to say thanks as leaving reviews help get wonderful guests like Dr. Michael Collins. So who is Dr. Collins? He studies consumer decision-making in the financial marketplace, including the role of public policy in influencing credit savings and investment choices. His research also focuses on incredibly interesting areas such as financial coaching, financial capability, and financial well-being. And Dr. Collins really believes in the process of financial coaching as a means to help clients understand what they want, meet them where they're at, so that they can create a financial life, a financial plan that really speaks to them personally. Financial coaching is very personal. It doesn't take a one-size-fits-all template and add it to everybody. Financial coaching helps people develop financial agency so that they feel the confidence to make decisions in their financial lives that resonate with them. His work is fascinating, and we talk so much about the benefits of financial coaching and how it can help us create lasting financial behavior changes that are driven by understanding our own needs instead of what we're often used to is fear. Fear often drives us to make changes that are short-lived in nature. And we talk about how that shame impacts our financial health in a negative way and how financial coaching can help reduce or at times even eliminate that shame. Collecting and gaining new financial information is important. But if we aren't utilizing it or implementing that information, then sometimes we have to wonder, what's it for? On today's show, Dr. Collins really talks about how we can start implementing this information so that we can create and make those lasting financial behavior changes that we aspire to have. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Michael Collins. Collins, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Before the show, I was explaining how I have been referencing, reading many of your papers on coaching, 
financial capability, and many other topics. And I'm really excited to dive into with the author himself. So I've been looking forward to this conversation. But I thought before we dive into your work exactly, I thought we would maybe hop in a little bit of a time machine to get to know Michael a bit more. And let's go in this time machine and go back to when you just started your journey into your profession, the fields that you study now. With the knowledge you have now, reflecting back on that younger Michael, why do you think you started to just pursue this career that brought you to where you are today? Yeah, that's a really insightful question. It's interesting. I did my undergraduate degree in economics and, and education. I wanted to be a high school econ teacher, right? So, and, I, and it turned out I wasn't a great classroom manager and I didn't love the, the school setting. But I think I've always been in that same space of trying to help people understand you know, economics, you know, whatever extent that might be. So one of my first positions I had was actually around mortgage finance and providing education to people who are trying to get a first time, you know, first time mortgage, first time home buyer programs. This was back in late nineties, early two thousands when it was the rules for getting loans were pretty hard. And, you know, we would really work hard. We'd, you know, hours and hours with families to get them to the point where they could have the knowledge, have the, the credit or home file and everything else so they could buy their first home. And it was really life-changing for many of them. But then as the 2000 rolled in, we saw them refinancing those loans four or five times, taking out cash, getting some prime loans. And then I got just really fascinated with like, what is going on? What is it about, you know, people that then they get into these financial markets and then they get the doors open to them? Why do they get in trouble? And all, we saw millions of people get in trouble. So then I, that was really when I pivoted towards a PA. And my research uh, specifically around foreclosure, foreclosure counseling, the things that the industry can do, the things that consumers can do. I found in a lot of my research that there's a lot of like, oh, the villain is the lender, the villain's the financial industry, or the villain's the, you know, the consumer or the duped consumer, you know, and it's always more complicated than that. It's always a little bit of everything. And so that's where a lot of my work has been is sort of like, how do you best prepare people, not just for the mortgage market, but whether it's retirement or disability or saving for college or managing student loans, whatever it might be, what is it that we can do? And sometimes that's things that public policy can do. Sometimes that's things that the industry can do. Sometimes it's things that, that the education system could do. But I think that's really what's motivating me is try to get, you know, try to do the research to provide the evidence to support people to pursue whatever their financial goals are in the best way possible. So many different avenues we can go there. I, I really appreciate that answer. And I'm going to skip over all the thoughts I was having about <laughs> what you've done. At that last part, like you said, how do we best prepare people? You talked about the villain. And yes, we all often victimize whomever. And then you mentioned public policy, education, so more of the system levels. So I really want to get into stuff you've done, but with with this idea of how do we best prepare people, we look at the villains, there's public policies, education, what excites you the most or what work is really exciting you right now that helps continue the work that you've been doing? I want to get into the work you've done, but I'm curious, how do we continue? How does Dr. Collins continue to prepare people? Well, I think it's exciting looking towards the future. And some of this is driven by technology, but not not only technology. I think it's, you know, the fact that we're just sort of evolving in our understanding of financial issues is that we're starting to see more blending of financial topics across different fields. So traditionally, if you had some, you know, health issues, you went to a doctor. If you had some financial issues, you went to a financial planner or a financial counselor. But now I think we're seeing that these these things are more meshed together. So 
part of the, the process of a young person seeking out college is to figure out the financial side of it, to fill out the FAFSA forms, to do to do all that side of it. So it's not just this educational goals, it's also understanding that financial side. We're seeing it with couples and, you know, the understanding the dynamics of couple and the relationships. There's this financial side and how do you manage that and think about that? Same with retirement. What are you going to do with yourself? What are your career goals? What are you, you know, what's your vocation in retirement? And also understanding the money side and how you're going to manage your money and that kind of thing. So what's exciting to me is this blending of these things. And so we, we're seeing this more with employers and financial wellness that we're we're seeing it with students, high school and college. So, you know, I think those are some of the movements that are exciting. And, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of it now in healthcare, which I think is a nice acknowledgement of the fact that there's huge interactions between healthcare and finances. So that's got me excited. It's less of a siloed, like, well, that's the financial planner's job or the financial counselor's job. It's it's more like collectively we all, all have something to add to this if we have a little more knowledge about how to do this. Yeah, it sounds like it's accepting and ha- having that acceptance and awareness that, like it or not, we've got this relationship with money that's going to stick around with for, with us for the end of life. And right. I guess it's our job to learn how to dance in a healthy way. So you talked about that you had these ambitions of being an econ teacher and going into the education route. When we talk about what we can do to help people with financial stress, we think about education. We're coming out of a global pandemic and it's interesting that money, not health, still continues to be one of the top stressors for Canadians, Americans, and others around the world. A common response to addressing this money stress has, for the last 20 years has been to focus on education or financial literacy programs or more information. And while their, their intentions are good to give people more financial skills and information, some of your research and work suggests that perhaps having a different view on financial literacy or a different way to help people change could be around financial coaching. So I want to first start with what have you observed on why financial literacy at times fails to address the root cause and how does financial coach, or first off, what is financial coaching and how does financial coaching come in to fill in those gaps? Yeah, I, I, I actually... Those two topics blend well together because it partially explained why I got excited about this concept of financial coaching. But, you know, I think there have been a lot of studies on financial literacy programs, and, and this includes financial education with, you know, little kids in school, elementary school, all the way through adults, and oftentimes in employer settings or other kinds of settings. You know, I think the evidence is quite mixed. There are certainly programs that are high quality that we can see where young, like 18-year-olds who learn about managing their credit are less likely to miss payments and they have a little bit better credit. So like that kind of thing can really work. Some education for students as they're taking out student loans seems to have some effect on what kinds of loans they take, you know, what kinds of schooling they choose, those kinds of things. So there are cases where some education does help people to make better decisions, but it's very episodic, right? It's very much like, I need to make decisions now to make a decision about, do I open a 401k account or what do I put it into? Or do I take out this kind of mortgage or that kind of mortgage? So it's it's very kind of focused in its nature. It's hard for me to imagine a world in which I always have that at the ready every time I have to make a financial education, you know, a, a financial decision. That's always going to be some infrastructure available to provide that to me. So, you know, these generic financial education classes, maybe they have translatable skills, but it doesn't seem like many of them have the same kind of effect. So it's not that people can't learn, they can learn. It's just that oftentimes people need the information, you know, immediately. And there isn't a way to gain that knowledge 
and, you know, maybe you could say, well, they could just trust somebody in the industry to guide them. But, you know, people are realistic about the fact that those industry folks may not have their best interests in mind. They may not be objective third parties. They may have a commission or something to get out of it. So, you know, I think there's a limit to financial education. I, I often say financial education or financial literacy is a compliment. It's not a substitute for regulation. It's not a substitute for counseling. And I'll talk about coaching in a minute, but I think, you know, it's useful to have information and it's useful to have some general information and specific information when you're faced with a decision, but it's got to be available. You know, I, I don't have to drive across town and spend eight hours doing it. It's got to be available sort of in a, in a convenient and easy way. Can I expand on that? Because, you know, and I'm sure some people listening are like, no, the information is good. I really personally utilize the information. And I know I felt that resistance or that defensiveness actually to financial literacy. Like, it doesn't work. When when I first started being curious about these ideas, and then when I started realizing more about human behavior and change and realizing that we're all in different stages of change, it occurred to me, well, I was just at that level ready to, when you talk about time, I was ready to absorb that information. And as I talked with more people, I understand that, yeah, like some of these complex, like to use your example, driving across that town for eight hours of, inf- like, that sounds like the worst thing in the world to them because they're just in that different level of change. So yeah, I just want to give my own personal experience with that. Yeah, that's totally right. It's, you know, it's gotta be people where they're at. And, you know, I think there's been a stance and especially uh, among people in the industry or policymakers who want the quick fix. They want the sort of, you know, they want the win and the win column. Is like, hey, we provided this education, mm-hmm. we're done. And mm-hmm. it's not that kind of a treatment. It's, you know, and you think about like in the concept of health, like just learning about the dangers of smoking or the dangers of fat or the benefits of its exercise doesn't really result in people, you know, smoking less, eating less fat or exercising more. So, you know, we see lots of examples in our lives where we know what the right thing is to do, but we don't necessarily do it. You just made me think of like cigarette packets who like give the label. I don't know if they still do that. I don't have like, but they put the label on. They're like, this is going to make you ill, but here you go, have it. And then I'm thinking about the lenders who like entice you to take out a lot of lines of credits or credit, but they're like, but we provide financial literacy. <laughs> like, look at us. We've got a noble star. It's really good for marketing, maybe not for impactful change, but <laughs> right. Exactly. And we see that across, I mean, it's not just finance, it's a lot of channels. Mm-hmm. The reason I first got interested in financial coaching was I sort of understanding these limits. Like we, so I'd done this work, as I said before, on financial education, people buying their first home and then seeing how they got into trouble <laughs> thereafter. And then oftentimes what people would then do is get a, a counselor. So they would get a counselor either funded from a government program or, or directly to a lender. And that counselor would try to help them to figure out their finances to make their next mortgage payment. And then as I did some search, did some research in this space, looked at the data, talked to some of these counselors. I realized the same people are coming back for counseling like every three or four months. Like, well, what's going on here? Like, basically, they're going to the counselor to help solve the problem, basically rebudget. But then they fall right back into the same pattern. And then they're right back where they started, you know, a few months later. Um, And so you'd see people come back three or four times for this, you know, emergency counseling to try to get control of finances. And I realized, all right, you know, something's going wrong here. It's not just education. It's not just counseling. People have got to figure out some pathway forward. And I started looking at some of the research on coaching. So more like career coaching, performance coaching and athletics or career coaching or executive coaching for people at management, those kinds of coaching. Because a lot of it was from the UK, Australia, or other places. And then thinking about how that was different 
from what we traditionally see from financial counseling or financial planning, which tends to be a little bit more like, I'm here to solve your problem. I have a lot of expertise. I have a lot of knowledge. I'm going to help you figure out the solution based on all that knowledge that I have. And what I really liked about this coaching model was there's no presumption that the coach is an expert. The presumption is that the client is the expert, that the person who's trying to figure out these problems, they, they know what they need to do, but they just haven't figured out how to get it done, right? They have goals that they want to achieve. They have the potential to do whatever it is they need to do, but they need somebody to help them figure out what the next step is. And so some of this is learning how to be more planful. Some of this is having somebody hold you accountable, hold your feet to go fire so you can do the things that are hard. Some of this is just, you know, oftentimes people avoid I'm sure you've talked a lot about this in the past, like people avoid financial issues. So a coach can just make it very obvious. This is something you got to deal with. And so that's why I got really interested in this concept of financial coaching is, is applying these coaching models to financial issues. Instead of trying to be a counselor and solve the problem for somebody or the planner who comes in with sort of technical analysis and a technical plan, work with people. And it often involves multiple sessions, but working with people so that they can start to figure out what their goals are, what are some steps they can do, and then really hold them accountable to take those steps. Humans, we love to be heard and valued and seen. And when I think of financial planning as a profession, it's very much like, okay, let me do an intake. But in my head, I've already got a pre-described plan that I'm going to give to everybody, so to speak. And I don't know if there's always that opportunity to, like you said, let the client lead as opposed to the planner kind of dictating what's going to happen. So I can see why people might not resonate all the time with financial planning if they're not feeling heard or seen or their values aren't actually surfacing. And then when you bring up the financial counselor, yeah, it sounds like what you're talking about. It's very much putting a fire out. There's an issue, let's put the fire out, and it keeps repeating. When you talk about coaching, it seems much more proactive. What what has your research shown in actual impacts of the financial coaching. So like we, you know, we can have a theory that this is good, but you've done a lot of research around the impacts of financial coaching. What what have you seen? The traditional measures of outcomes are things like savings or reduction in debt or increasing credit scores. I mean, those kinds of, of outcomes. And certainly we've seen in studies that there is movement on those regards. So within six months to 12 months after some engagement with financial coaching, people are saving more or they're Particularly, they have less high-cost debt, meaning like credit card debt or past-due bills, those kinds of things. And their credit scores start to reflect that. So you start to see some positive movement there. Well, I think those are great outcomes. And they're certainly outcomes that get the attention of policymakers <laughs> and funders. And so, you know, those, those are things that certainly get a lot of attention. I think what's more impactful to me is that when you ask people, how are you doing? Like, it's more subjective financial well-being. Do you feel like you have control over your finances? Do you have financial goals? Are you making progress in your financial goals? After a few coaching sessions, people are much more likely to be affirmative on those kinds of questions. So to me, that's more powerful because it says that people are starting to become more aware of their financial issues. They're starting to start to create an agenda of things they want to get done. And they're taking action. They are taking actions to get things done. They're not relying on the planner or the counselor to do it for them. They're actually doing whatever it is that their plans are. And what's frustrating sometimes, I think when you look at the data on financial coaching programs, so let's say you see on average people increase their savings and decrease the debt. 
that's all fine. But what if your goal was actually to like buy a house? And so you spent all your savings on a down payment and then you took out a big mortgage. So your debt goes up. So in those averages, you don't really follow what the good, the right thing is. The good thing to do is you're not sort of, you know, whatever people's perception is of, you know, more savings is good and less debt is good. You just did the opposite. But that's exactly the right thing for you to, to do, given your situation, your context, what your goals were. And so that's often where I get sort of stuck on some of these studies of financial coaching is that, you know, on average for a group of people, it probably is better to pay down debt than to take on more debt. But for some people, it's just the opposite is the right thing to do. So I think we have to be careful when we look at some of these data on financial coaching. I think the most important thing is that people are taking control. <laughs> They're not, you know, looking at their finances once a year when they file taxes. They're really kind of figure out what their goals are, and then they're taking actions with their money to achieve whatever those goals are. I really enjoyed that answer. And uh, much of my podcast is about identifying our money stories so that we can look at our relationship with money in a different way that we feel financially free. What I mean by that is not bank account, having enough money to not have to work, but like in a way, I don't think it's ever, it's probably an aspirational goal, but to feel like we have less detachment or more detachment to our money. And so that we experience that financial well-being that you talked about. I heard you saying that I like that idea of with financial coaching, we start to take action. And I think that's building that financial efficacy or that agency that I can have the confidence to make my decisions, which I can only imagine leads to increased subjective well-being. Can you just touch on, for listeners who aren't totally familiar, we've talked about subjective well-being before. What is subjective well-being and why, why did you talk about that? Why is it important for you in this context? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, there, there's a huge, huge literature in psychology on subjective well-being. And, you know, economists, sociologists, other, other fields worry a lot about financial well-being. I think what we, as researchers, what we worry about is that when we measure income, wealth, or debt, those are really proxies for something, right? They're proxies for your potential to be able to meet your needs. They're proxies for the potential that you can, you know, raise your kids or have a happy and avoid hardships in your life, those kinds of things. So that's really kind of where we use those proxies for. But we all know examples of people who are not wealthy. They don't have high incomes. They don't have a lot of wealth, but they're very, very happy. They've figured out a way to make means of that. And we also know, I mean, I I certainly know many people who have relatively high wealth and relatively strong incomes and are financially a mess. They cannot get control of their finances. And so, you know, those proxies tend to be kind of crude. And there have been attempts over the last 20 years to try to get at subjective questions, some of which build on the sort of generic subjective well-being and others that are more financially focused to try to understand what it is that makes people feel financially well, whatever that might be. And it turns out it's it's nothing surprising, right? So people feel more confident about their finances when they have some resilience, meaning they have a little bit of emergency fund or they know they can borrow. Maybe it's from friends and family, but they know they can get money in a pinch. If the car breaks down, if they have a house repair, they have some health expense, they have some ability to manage that. So I think having that resilience, and we saw that during COVID as well, you know, that the people, when they had a little cash to fall back on, they, they had a better sense that they were going to be okay. The other thing is having goals. You know, a common feeling among uh, especially people who are stressed about their money is feeling like their money controls them, not that they control their money. So if they feel like they have goals and they can achieve their goals, and it may be hard, but they feel like they can take steps and they can get to where they want to go, then they feel better subjectively about their finances, kind of regardless what they're income or debt or other kinds of things are. So, you know, it's just a handful of things like that, like having a little bit of resilience, 
feeling like you have autonomy, feeling like you have some control, you know, feeling like it's not saying that you're not going to have ups and downs, but it's that you have resilience if those ups and downs or when those ups and downs occur. So that having that control, being able to absorb a problem when it comes and then having that, you know, that those goals that you feel like that you're on track to take care of, that you feel like you have the ability to take steps on those things. So there are some scales that are used. I've been involved in the development of some scales in this area, but it's really, I don't want to overcook it and say like, oh, you have to answer, you have to ask this question a certain way. It has to be answered in X way and Y that way. It's really this, this general sense of do people feel like they have control, they have resilience and that they're on track to get their goals. I, I just really enjoy hearing you talk about, I, I guess, the outcomes or the, the ongoing outcomes of financial coaching. Because I do feel at times we distract ourselves from the technical side of financial planning and the outcomes of like, you need to increase the savings rate. You need to have this amount by the time you're 45 or 50, otherwise you're doomed. And while those technical parts, like you mentioned, having a little savings account add up, I'm hearing that the psychological or the financial coaching is increasing our psychological assets, our, our psychological ability to become more resilient, to become more adaptable. And I think, and I want to get your opinion on this, but it, some of this starts with self-awareness, especially when we're looking at making financial behavior change. And I think one of the hardest parts, at least what I've experienced, is understanding where we're at. <laughs> like, we you know, we might set a goal and it's all good to have a like an airplane ticket if it's bringing me to Hawaii. But if I don't understand where I'm at, which departure gate, I'm not going to get to Hawaii. So with your experience, your research, what role does understanding or having self-awareness play in assisting us and helping us change our financial behaviors? Yeah, I'm reminded I did some work a while back with a woman named Peggy Olive, who was at the University of Wisconsin, and she taught a coaching class and she did a lot of work with trying to teach aspiring financial coaches to do this kind of thing. And she, she would throw around this mnemonic of A4. So there's four A's, right? So the big A is alliance. The, the coach and the client have this strong alliance and they work together. They have a good relationship. They trust each other. They're equals. It's not the, the mentor or the expert talking down to the client, but they really are in alliance. But the second one, you know, the second big piece of it, and she was for a draw, like in a circle, this would be the big chunk of the circle, was awareness. And so part of what the coach's job and the client's job is to raise awareness. And so the client has to be willing to admit the things that make them nervous or the things that, you know, keep them up at night. And then the coach has to keep asking the why questions, you know, so like, why does that student loan make you so nervous? What is it about it? Are you afraid that you're not going to make the payments? Are you afraid of the interest rate? Why, like, what is it about it? And so asking, it's like the three-year-old asking why, 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 why. So a lot of what the coach is doing is helping people to develop that own self-awareness and that's the biggest part of what coaching is, is that awareness building. And then the other two A's then are making an agenda. The third A is agenda. And the last one is action. So you can't make an agenda or start taking actions until you have that awareness. And so alliance, awareness, agenda, action, where really awareness is the most of the work. And it's all that active questioning, that active listening, you know, having empathy, having the ability to encourage people to, you know, admit some things that maybe are less comfortable to admit, those kinds of things. And it seems that this coaching process tenderizes us as an individual in a way to admit those things, to have more empathy and compassion towards ourselves so that we can develop that awareness. And what, what an interesting model. 
So often I, I see people in their finance create an agenda, create an action plan, but have not taken the time to build the awareness around themselves and they go all or none, you know, because we're usually driven by fear and it's all or nothing thinking and the budget is just technically immaculate for a month yeah. and then it just falls. <laughs> you know, it, it's hard to sustain that. We see that transcend beyond financial change. So I really like yeah. this idea of, yeah, awareness, then agenda and action. Yeah, I'll say the other thing too that, that tends to happen is that people often come in thinking they need to do a dozen things, right? I need, I need to build a budget, I need to save, I need to do blah, blah, blah. And then once they go through this awareness step, they're like, no, actually, I just need to really do these three things. Like it, it, it actually really simplifies the steps. Mm-hmm. Like I need to automate my savings with my employer. I need to like get this mm-hmm. budget under control, which means I don't use my car or I don't, you know, whatever it is that works for that person. But it often simplifies, not complicates things for clients. And that's that was surprising to me when I saw that, you know, people would come in with six or seven goals and after a couple of sessions of coaching, they'd have three or four. <laughs> and so, you know, they really became more of what was important to them. And like you just said, that those are the things they're going to actually do. Now they're bought in, they're their goals, they're, they're their actions, and it becomes something that they want to get done. And at some point, they don't need a coach because they, they've sort of made it part of them and part of what they want to do. It reminds me, I can't remember which podcast I heard, of, but it was with Barack Obama. And he talked about like, sure, when he came in as president, he would love to like do all these changes, but he talked about the one degree of change. And I think this idea of self-awareness, we're all like, we're all crazy, instinctual creatures that like when this fear comes in, it's like, oh, I got to do this. The world's ending. Our financial lives are ending. But that awareness allows us to pause a little bit. And maybe to your earlier point, if we if we feel that that stress coming or that cortisol coming and have that self-awareness, we can then almost pause. And with that, I don't know how you'd integrate that, but that just-in-time financial planning or that just-in-time financial education, we can almost seek if we understand what we need to go get that. That might be a little more difficult, but I guess it's just that pause where I hear you saying that it's it's it, coaching allows us to facilitate that. Exactly. The ideal coaching model is one where people, they build their financial capability. They build, they become empowered. And so they don't have to go back to that. Maybe, maybe they have an emergency. They have to go back to a counselor. Maybe they you need a financial planner because they have some technical estate or you know, mm-hmm. other kinds of issues. I'm not saying they're never going to need help again, but they're going to be much more self-reliant. Mm-hmm. And I think that's ultimately where we're going to get people to. And you mentioned financial capable. So you, in your work, you talk about financial capability a fair bit. Can you expand on what is financial capability? I mean, we can intuitively try to make sense of it with the definition, but since you, you're the man who's been researching it, why is it relevant to us? Yeah, it's, and financial capability, I think, builds on on work and you know even the developing world and other kinds of places as well. And so a lot of the work actually come, comes out of the social work field in the U.S., but I really like the concept of financial capability because what it says is it's not about financial knowledge or literacy. It's not like knowing what to do. It's having the knowledge, yes, having the information, having the ability, meaning the confidence that I can, you know, it's not just knowing that I can go to my HR person and set up a retirement savings. It's having the confidence to go do that and to be able to, you know, have the perseverance to fill out a, a you know, horrible form or whatever it is that you have to do that. But then I think the other thing that's important about financial capability is that I'm capable of doing it, but then do I have access? So for, for a lot of folks who 
you know, maybe do want to save or maybe do want to borrow. They just don't have access through a, you know, a traditional financial route to be able to do that. So, you know, maybe they are part of a bank or credit union, but that bank credit union doesn't offer the kinds of loan or savings product that they need. They could do some kind of retirement savings, but their employer doesn't offer a good plan or offer a plan at all. So financial inclusion is really a close cousin, I would say, of financial capability, which is you need to have the ability to have access to these tools. So I need to know how to do it. I need to have the confidence that I can do it. And then I need to, it needs to be easy. I need to be able to go, go to my employer or go to my financial institution to be able to get access to these tools. So it's really those things combined. What I like about the financial capability model is it says like there's a little bit of responsibility on the industry, a little bit on the consumer and on the whole system to try to help people to be able to take the action steps that they want to do. Yeah, that the way you just laid that out, that everyone has a little bit of responsibility. Some of your papers, you talk about the financial coaching on the impacts of financial coaching on low-income families and households. At what point, or not what point, but so we have the individual responsibility where we can do some coaching, but then your point around financial inclusion isn't, you know, it's not fair and accessible to everybody, whether it's loans, mortgages, investments, financial information. How does this this work go up to the policy levels so that people who are doing the work like low-income individuals, can start to get more financial inclusion or be accessible to more of the financial products and services that other demographics have access to? That is a really tricky and important topic. And I think, and it's not just the U.S. I've seen, you know, examples in the EU and the U.K. and other places where there have been efforts by the public sector to try to, whether it's provide information or provide counseling or provide coaching, um, we even had a model in the U.S. where there was financial coaching provided through the federal government, through agencies. And it's just really hard because this is a messy process. Like, it's hard to find people who are at the point where they're ready and willing to work with a coach. It's hard to find coaches that are really well-skilled and can can do the work. It's hard to provide, you know, if, if you're not going to charge fees, then you have to be able to provide enough subsidy so that they can you know, not just do a one-and-done session. They can actually do two or three or four sessions with people that really do a real coaching relationship. And so all those things are, they're hard to do. And, you know, for many, you know, I want to throw all policymakers under the bus, but, you know, if you're running an agency or if you're a politician, you're saying like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to put some money into this program. It'll take a while to show outcomes. Not everyone's going to see their savings go up. Not everyone's going to see their debt go down. You know, it's going to help people do whatever they think is important to them. That gets really hard and complicated, right? It's not like, Oh, I, you know, eight hours of financial education before you get a mortgage results mm-hmm. in your people halting in their mortgage. We should, you know, so it's complicated. I think that's part of what, what the stumbling block is. I will say where we see the most interest and enthusiasm around financial coaching is when you say to your cousin, brother, coworker, whatever, I went to this financial coach, it really helped me out. That word of mouth tends to be the most powerful of people sharing their experience of what worked. And so, you know, oftentimes it means getting into the networks where people are active, you know, getting, working through programs that are engaged with economically vulnerable populations, sometimes through schools, getting to the parents, for example, or through employers or unions. So I think there are models out there of where this can work, but it's really hard to do this as a cookie cutter and Mm -hmm. just, you know, launch a large program. Yeah, that implementation science is always how we implement models and theories is always, I guess, a lifelong puzzle to solve. But I'm hearing you say that from the individual level, 
as opposed to going to the public policy perhaps is the way that we can have a lot of impact right now. And before we started talking, I, I mentioned Sandra Davis and she's, I mean, I think she's a perfect example of the, the good work that we can do from like with her organization. Yeah. I mean, Sandra's a great example of somebody who's, you know, really tried to help people who think they're doing coaching, <laughs> but are very much stuck in the, I'm the expert. I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. And so she's really good at helping people realize like you have to have empathy. You have to recognize what's important for the client and then work with that. Like you can't, you know, start from the perspective of here's what you should do and wag your finger. Because it not only does it turn people off, I don't think it results in the same kind of behavior change. Mm. When you look at who resonates well with financial coaching? I've heard people in conversations that I've had is that coaching is like a luxury, like individuals in lower income or poverty. The, the book Scarcity really talks, a great book that I really enjoyed, but how when we're in poverty, we have these narrow thought focused on just like getting things on our tables and trying to just meet the day-to-day needs. And I've heard people say, well, coaching is for like, executives or people who it's like a luxury to have coaching. So my question is, is with your experience around low income and moderate income families, is that meeting them where they're at? If we're someone might say, Hey, no, no, no. That's for people who are have extra time and can think about like existential things. Who is coaching for financial coaching? I'll admit when I first started in this space, I did think it was more of a middle-ish income. Like you had to have some ability to, make ends meet. You had to have this and that. And I th- I think I was wrong on that. I, I really do think that these fundamental kinds of issues like awareness, what are the things that are important? That's true for everyone. Mm. So I, I don't think it's really has that income level. And so I remember a while back, I saw a coaching program that was in a homeless shelter. And at the time I was like, oh, this just seems like, you know, if you sort of think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like Literally, they're struggling for food and shelter. Is this really the right thing to do? But, you know, what I understood over time was that a lot of those folks really trying, like they just had a really bad spell of bad luck. And they really do have plans to to work, to get housing, to get back into the sort of mainstream economy. And that financial coach helped them to talk about what options they had or talk about what their goals were and what was most important to them. So, I've sort of turned 180 degrees on that. I think that the coaching can work across different groups. And in fact, if you've got somebody who's spent a lot of time with both caseworkers and counselors and sort of the, you know, top down, here's the rules, here's what you got to do to be able to qualify for this and that and the other thing. A financial coach might really be even more powerful for somebody in those situations because it's like, well, what's important to you? What do you want to mm-hmm. do? Like we can, we can help you to get wherever you want to go, but what is it that you want to do? Rather than saying, like, you have to jump to this hoop and that hoop and that hoop. So I really do think we can apply. It's going to be It's going to look different. Your approach is going to be different. Your questions are going to be different. Like, you absolutely, as a coach, have to understand the context of your clients. But in terms of the process, in terms of the outcomes, I think they can be quite similar. So I really do think that coaching can be powerful. And, you know, even taking a coaching approach and a, a, a coaching mindset for caseworkers could make a huge difference in their ability to engage with clients and to get them to start to think about their finances in a different way. So I've seen some examples now where coaching and coaching approaches have been embedded into social work programs or into case management or welfare programs. And it's pretty promising. I mean, I think we've seen a lot of data or research on that. It's still pretty small scale. But I do think that 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 sort of empathy base, that 
you know, the, the client has strengths. Let's help them explore their strengths. Let's help them build their awareness so they can take action. And I think that model really has, you know, a, a lot more power to it than model, which is, you know, more prescriptive or more top down. Yeah, it makes me think of what we're, we were kind of talking about earlier. People want to be heard. They want their voice to be heard and coaching allows that. Are you familiar with Dr. Ted Klontz? Yes, yes. Yes. Okay. I asked him a similar question and I'm beyond paraphrasing because I can't remember it exactly, but he said something about self-reflection should be for everybody around coaching. Like it's not like similar sentiment is used that this is not reserved for middle to high income people to have self-awareness to, of course, the models look different. So, so I appreciate that answer. Another thing that I, I found interesting is within your work, when we're looking at, I, I, sorry, I appreciate your focus on behavior, financial behavior change, as opposed to just information, because we could collect, we're, we're good at collecting information, podcasts, books, this, this, putting our bookshelves up. It, I mean, it feels good. I put them behind my wall here so people could see them. They're like, oh, look at what he's reading, but doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Not unless you're changing. So, but it seems like change sometimes is always initiated by fear or not always, but often we get motivated by fear to do something quick. And that's where I talked about earlier. It goes to this all or nothing thinking. We're, we're trying to do everything all at once. We know that research shows that, you know, that's not maybe the ideal, if there is an ideal way to approach change. In your papers, you talk about how coaching and positive psychology can be an effective tool when promoting behavior change. Let's just touch on why did you become interested in positive psychology and what evidence or what impact is it showing within the coaching realm? Yeah, I think, you know, positive psychology, I would say it's 15 to 20 years old. I mean, I think a lot of people are surprised at how young it is. So much of what psychology was for so long, like when I took psychology, you know, a long time ago, it was all about abnormal psychology. And what are the things that are wrong with human brains? And, and this idea that that we actually might want to try to think more about what is happiness and what, what is it that makes people happy and how do we, you know, how do we, as a field, as a clinical field, try to do more about that. What really got me focused on this in the beginning was seeing some work in social psychology where really simple ways to improve people's mood. So like we're talking like very mild, like giving people candy or giving people a compliment or, you know, the very minor things that help them feel a little bit more positive, how it changed their ability to, to do some basic tasks like, one example I saw was, I remember of a study was of doctors who were doing a uh, review of a patient information. And so half of them got this you know, positive affect. They got like some candy or something to make them feel better. And they did better review, a more accurate review. They paid more attention to the details. They considered more potential hypotheses. And so it just shows how powerful, you know, this positive thinking or, you know, being not in that crisis mode, as you just said. So when we're anxious and anxiety when you're getting chased by a wild animal, yeah, you want to run fast. <laughs> it's for that physical part, but it's not good for the cognitive part. And so trying to meet people where they're at, make them feel positive, make them see their assets, that can help them to explore more options and to you know, potentially come up with solutions that they wouldn't have come up with if they were just feeling like they were anxious and under the gun or fearful or whatever it might be. So I think it's a really important part of the, the coaching relationship is to not wag the finger, not make people feel bad. People have so much shame so that we've seen this a lot in when we've done qualitative work with people that they feel stupid about the financial choices they've made. And oftentimes they weren't even financial choices they made. It was like their employer had a, a poor retirement plan and they put a bunch of money into it and, it and they lost a lot of money in fees. That's not really your fault. Like you did the thing that everyone said you should do. It's just, it was bad luck or, you know, people who've been through a divorce or people who 
bought a financial product from a cousin, brother, or whatever, you know. So we see lots of those things where people have all this shame. And, you know, if you can start to destigmatize all this and just say, these are just choices, we are what we are today. You own this or don't own this. And just try to sort through what the options are. I think that's that's the most important thing is changing that dynamic from here's what you should do. Here's the cookie cutter approach. Here's the approach that fits, you know, 90% of people to let's talk about where you're at, what your goals are and figure out a plan that works for you. And, you know, really building on the agency that people feel rather than trying to motivate them based on fear or the potential that things might go badly if they don't do X, Y, or Z. Uh, Michael, I just appreciate that, that, that perspective of in and around shame and how coaching really, I think this is a term you use a lot is asset building, like building your, not, not money assets, but your own personal assets, resilience or hope. And I just think it's such a powerful way to approach that, experience that subjective well-being. And I think that this idea of positive psychology with coaching is so useful because there's also this wagging the finger on the financial side, but also around this positivity side. Like, what do you mean you're not happy? Like, you know, people could go to that end. Like, you should be happy. Look what you have. Or coaching, going back to self-awareness, can help people become more self-awareness. And I think approach those positive elements of life from a an intentional perspective as opposed to that fear-based, because like our fear-based reaction could also be like, I got to be happy. I should be happy. Why am I not happy? So I I think it's such a great model that you're suggesting around integrating positive psychology with coaching. Yeah. You know, I think this is true. (laughs) I think anybody who's involved in working with people having some knowledge of the coaching approach, the coaching techniques and a positive psychology is going to make you happier in your job. It's going to make you more effective in your job. Like it's just, it's something we ought to see more frequently uh, across different fields. And so finance is no different from that. So my last question is in around kids. Do you have kids? I do. I have two okay. now. One starting high school, one toward the end of high school. So oh, high wow. School. Imagine you're at end of life and whatever age that is, and you're at anywhere in the world that brings you peace. You could be looking at a mountain, an ocean, a meadow, whatever brings you peace. But you're on this front porch, sitting on this wooden rocking chair. And you decide to pull out your notepad and write a letter to your children's children on what you learned about having a healthy, happy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? Yeah, I think the key theme would be around, you know, your goals. What, you know, don't let anybody tell you what your goals are and that what's important to you is what's important. And, you know, if that's, same for retirement. Like that's where your goals are. If it's to work, you know, every day until you retire, you know, you don't never like whatever it is. Like if it's travel, if it's whatever it is that gives you joy and that's your goal, that don't let don't let anybody tell you that's not a good goal. I think we all can use a little bit more joy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Do you have any last comments for listeners? If they're interested in finding your work, your papers, where would you point them to? Yeah, you know, there's there's so much information coming from academic research as well as non-academic research. There's just a lot flowing out there. I will say at, at the University of Wisconsin, we have a Center for Financial Security. People are more than welcome to come, you know, just Google Center for Financial Security Wisconsin, find that website. We have a mailing list and, you know, oftentimes we're doing seminars, we're doing webinars when new research is released. So that can be a way to keep up with one source, certainly not the definitive source, but one source. Uh, but I certainly can feel I myself can feel pressure to keep up with everything that's coming on out there. So it's just another source to be aware of. 
Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your insights. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Without a top, my wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind.